talk to your observability engineers, talk to your observability team, ask them about what you would like them to offer you. I believe that every team should be an owner of their observability, signals of what they're sending, alerts they're creating, dashboards they're creating. Of course, we're there to help, to provide the tools, guidance, but I think the teams are the ones that need to do their part. Do your part, tell us what you need, give us feedback and we'll try to do better. Hello, I'm Martin Thwaites. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short. A monthly series where we talk about how we can make production systems more observable, more reliable, and easy to maintain. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. I love observability because it's such an important part of platform engineering of a company that we don't even realize it. And I made it kind of my life mission to be an advocate and to promote and to actually show how cool it is and how important it is. Because there are so many companies, so many engineers that say, ah, observability, why do we need that for until something happens and you realize that, oh, okay, yeah, I needed that and I needed some good observability there. (laughs) Nice. What was that for you? What experience made you decide that you need observability? Well, first, my career, I started as a back-end engineer. Uh, I was trained as one, and then I started working in a company that offered uh, services to other companies. So they wanted a DevOps engineer, and uh, I was trained to become one. It was the, the, the best move that I could in my career. And that's why I had a lot of interest and a lot of exposure to a lot of tech stacks and how difficult it was to get things done for them, especially when you just entered there and you were new and you had absolutely no idea what was happening. There was no metrics. Logging was not great. I'm not the biggest fan of loggings. That's something that I guess you have in common with Mark. <laughs> Even logging, like, you know, was a bit not great. Tracing was almost non-existent. So it just made me more interested to go and look for solutions And then I actually had the opportunity to start in a company that was doing observability, had a whole observability. I'm like, okay, this is amazing. And uh, my love for it, uh, that's that's how it started. I saw a company that didn't have it. I saw some very cool things online that, oh, wow, these things can be done. Imagine how much they can improve the lives of all these engineers I've worked with. And yeah, I got hooked, (laughs) let's say. It is. It's addictive, isn't it? It's amazing. It can get very, very like analyzing data and seeing trends and those aha moments of nice little spikes and that kind of stuff is is really addictive at times. Yeah. I just started working in my new company at Miro a month ago and during my onboarding, one of my coworkers was, there is a lot of information, maybe you're going to be bored. And I said, I never get bored of observability. <laughs> Bring it on. It's just amazing stuff. Uh, I am very passionate about it, as you can tell. <laughs> Great. Can you tell us something specific, a story of something you saw that got you excited? Well, the thing that got me excited the most was traces. In my previous company, when my full observability journey started, I actually started working with uh, traces heavily. I was using Jaeger and then you would open a trace and see all the spans and how everything went and you could understand everything that was going on there. I was like, wow, (laughs) this is amazing. We need more of this. So that's definitely the one that uh, really amazed me. And it started uh, my, my passion for tracing in general as well. 
So I think this would be an amazing time for you to introduce yourself and who you are, what you're doing right now, that kind of stuff. I'm Iris, Iris, Iris again. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty international name. I'm a senior observability engineer at Miro. I am currently based in Portugal and my team is based in Amsterdam. So it's a, a very uh, interesting uh, multinational team. And what we're doing right now is we are trying to build our own observability platform with open source tooling, providing some amazing modern tools for our engineers to be able to uh, to rely on our system to debug, to troubleshoot, uh, and why not to avoid having some issues. So that's pretty much it. Uh, my main focus is usually on tracing. I Since I speak so much about it, usually uh, wherever I go, I'm like, oh, okay, you want to work with tracing? work with it so it kind of becomes my thing so that's my focus and what I'm most passionate about but yeah observability is my thing I also like writing speaking about observability and connecting with uh, the community in general to learn more and to to keep an open mind about what's coming and what's new great what goes into building an observability platform well first of all you need to be a good platform engineer in the sense that you need to know the environments that you're working with you need to be a very fast learner because from my experience with observability, it's something that moves very fast. One year you have this technology and then one year later you have this amazing new one that you really need to, to improve and get on it and learn it. Uh, let's say about open telemetry, all the companies that I worked with were not using open telemetry and all of a sudden, boom, it became the next thing and you had to learn and adapt. So that's also very important. And also to build an observability platform, not more on the technical side, but more on the people side, you need to have people working on it that are good communicators. For me, building an observability platform is not just the tech part, it's also knowing your engineers, knowing what they need, helping, assisting, and becoming like a service provider. So I think that's the, the next important thing, other than, of course, knowing what you're doing technically. It's not just about talking and getting into agreements. Right. Observability is about communication. It's about our software communicating to us. So to do it well, you also need to communicate to developers. It's almost like communications and interactions is at the core of everything that we do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so so let's talk about logs, because I love talking about logs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you're like me, you're, you're into traces. And, you know, we've been talking to a few people on the, the, the Olicast recently about their journey from logs to traces and why they moved through that kind of journey from logs to traces. What was what was your experience of the difference? Um, I have my own opinions. Um, I will probably share them because, you know, it's who I am. But um, <laughs> I'd like to hear what your opinion is and, and why you moved um, through from logs to traces. Well, uh, one thing that I have to say about logs is that I'm not completely let's abolish logs forever. Uh, they're good. Sometimes they're necessary. It's good to have it. <laughs> but at times, it's like you have this huge amount of information that it's not telling you anything. And sometimes you have to search for a needle in a haystack. And if they're not formatted properly, if there is not some kind of uh, uh, good formatting, it's, it makes it even more difficult. I've seen some logs that were... I mean, I'm making a gesture right now, but like this big <laughs> that you cannot read through them and you have to spend hours trying to find what is happening there. It can be very, very painful troubleshooting something. Sure, sometimes it's necessary, but traces, I mean, what can I say about tracing? You have the whole call where it passes through, 
you can very easily find the bottlenecks, find what was an error and what was not. Uh, sometimes even it's easy for an engineer that doesn't even know what their system actually does. <laughs> you can go there and, and see and actually help you much easier in general. And, and just to troubleshoot, for example, if you are in a time constraint and you have to go between uh, traces and logs, I would always go to traces because it's, it's a much easier, very intelligent way of troubleshooting in my case. And I, I feel like for tracing, also the instrumentation is done in a more standard format. Usually uh, teams do not really bother of making uh, like different fields for different things. So tracing is pretty much standardized and works much better. But logging, because it's, it's such an old pillar and it is used for years and years, sometimes it's like 10 years ago that an application was created and some logging uh, was added there and it, it still exists. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons that I don't like it either. But in general, it's just too much information, very difficult to filter, to process, and sometimes you don't find what you need. That's all. All my rant about logs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of that is, you know, the, the historic context of that. We have to pay homage to log scholars here. Logs, if you do them well, you know, you do them structured, you have standards around them and that kind of stuff, they can get you a long way. That doesn't mean that logs are useless because they are useful in a lot of contexts. My main point is that traces provide so much more on top of what you get from logs. And sometimes you can't have traces and that's fine. But like you say, the, the logs are what we've had for ages. Everything has logs. I'm sure logging systems have logs. <laughs> Even trace systems have logs. Yeah. And you can lose your logs to debug your traces. Um, so logs can be useful <laughs> in a lot of contexts. And I have, in the past, been very anti-logs. And that's really just because I believe that people can get so much more out of moving to traces, not because they can't get a lot from logs. So I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head with what you said there. Moving to traces, that gets to something I wanted to ask you about, Iris. You said that as an observability engineer, you need to learn very fast because it changes a lot. And it does. There's a lot of advancement right now, but you knowing about it doesn't like get it into all the existing software. So how do you do that? Even once you understand open telemetry, how do you like work that migration path? What I would say is you need to be a very good politician. <laughs> Observability <laughs> needs some politics. We were actually having a discussion about this uh, the other day with my team uh, about introducing open telemetry more, more widely. And uh, it's do it by showing. In my case, it's like, okay, uh, we want to have, I'm using open telemetry because usually when I'm about to migrate a system to open telemetry, first is the tracing. So that's why I'm focusing there. So do it by showing, provide a very nice example. In our case, we always go for tracing. We implement open telemetry, nice collectors, SDKs, open telemetry operator, and just show these cases and people get hooked. <laughs> when you see how much information you can get and how easy it can be done, you actually don't need to change much. Uh, your ways don't need to change. It becomes easier. But of course, it's not just being politics and trying to convince people because it's not, uh, of course, they have their own their own things to do, their own OKRs, and uh, we cannot just force them, oh, please update, please update. Of course, we have to make it as convenient as possible for them so their migration to that will be flawless. So 
The first thing is show something beautiful and how useful it can be for them. And the second one, provide a very easy and convenient way for them to migrate to it. Nice. Make it useful, make it easy. So I, I think that's at the core of what software is. It's about make the easy thing the right thing. Uh, make the the wrong thing the hard thing. And if the easy thing is the right thing, and that's also going to give them a lot more value as well, then you know you you kind of get a win win, and everybody's just going to adopt it. If we make, and I've said this for quite a while, if you're a platform team or a centralized tooling team, and you have to force people to use your tool, you're obviously not providing the value that they need. You're providing value that you want to give. So making that easy to adopt and making that provide them with the right value means that you don't have to be, and you mentioned politics, you don't have to be the politician there because you're providing them with a service that's essentially free that will give them value. Who's going to say no to that? But they do say busy. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) Do you see people using observability during development or is it only in production that they look at stuff? Honestly, as much as I don't like it, I see people using observability in the form of logs in development phase. But uh, yeah, it's mostly in, in production. I mean, sometimes it makes sense. You know, you don't want to put as much effort in a development environment or uh, when you're developing, it's normal to look at the logs more. You're not going to <laughs> to go and try to have traces and metrics. But uh, definitely in production, that has been my experience. I'm going to challenge that. <laughs> <laughs> logs work when it's like only you doing exactly one thing in your test environment. Logs do not scale. They also don't work when you're talking about things like multi-threading and you're talking about maybe 15 requests. You know, you load up um, a, a website locally and it's got 17 JavaScript files. It makes 15 API calls to your backend. Trying to make sense of what thing called what thing and looking at your logs and you just see a big stream of things. Tracing provides so much more value even there. I completely agree. We know you like it, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but that that brings us to, you've talked about tracing and collectors and stuff like that. Is it all backend or do you have front-end observability as well? Uh, mostly backend. Front-end is what I'm uh, actually more interested in investing now in, uh, in my new change, but mostly it has been backend. But I'm very curious about learning more about front-end. Yeah, tell us about that because Miro, that's an interesting front-end. Yeah, it's like a whiteboarding app, right? So it's very interactive. It is very interactive. And multiplayer. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the things that we are actually wanting to improve there, the front-end monitoring. We actually have teams. I, I'm very new, <laughs> so don't take everything for granted. It's just like as I'm learning as I go, it's only been one month for me. But as far as I see, we have, because it's such an important part, we have a, let's say, a completely different or isolated part just for the front-end at the moment, but uh, the plan is to unify the whole thing together. And uh, yeah, it's our biggest plan right now is to unify everything together and to put more emphasis on, on the front end. But to be honest, that's all my experience right now with the front end uh, monitoring. But yeah, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'll get there. So I've got a question about the data side. You're building a, an observability backend for your engineers to be able to do. That's a lot of data. It is. And that's a lot of complex compute and all of that kind of stuff. You know, how, how are you going about thinking about your volume and scaling and thinking about how you're going to make this work at scale? Like, Miro's not a small thing. And when we talk about front-end observability as well on top of that, there's going to be a lot, a lot of data there. How are you going about thinking about that? 
There is a lot of data. So there is, uh, let's say, we are in a path that we need to take a lot of decisions regarding observability. Currently, of course, we have uh, our own backend. We're using open source tooling, for example. We're using Jaeger for tracing, Jaeger UI, open search for the backend. And of course, it is a it is a very big challenge. So that's something that we're currently considering right now. Uh, will it be a good idea to keep as we are right now, knowing the challenges that it is to well, to scale. It's the same for, we're using Victoria Metrics, which is a great solution for us, but also like if uh, the load of our metrics increases, uh, will it be able to scale, will it be able to, to go further? Will it be worth it to do all this by ourselves or uh, have the help of, for example, a provider that will do the processing for us? We do the uh, information uh, collection and everything that happens in the background, but then we have a provider that will do the processing for us. So it's kind of like a, we are in that path that we are still deciding and seeing how everything is going. Right now, we have managed to scale and everything is working smoothly. And of course, we have our challenges day to day. You can imagine it's like having 100 different technologies there. But uh, yeah, long term, it's a conversation that we're having that, that we make, need to take some decisions because uh, the bigger the company gets, the more information we need to process. And of course, it's never enough observability information, <laughs> especially in tracing. You always can get more and can get more valuable information. So yeah, it's not something uh, that we are taking lightly. Just a lot of decisions that will be taken. So I suppose the question is there then, do you have observability for your observability? Like, how are you knowing that you need to scale? How are you knowing that your customers, and your customers being your developers, how do you know that they're having a problem? Have you tackled that yet? Yeah, well, we do have observability for our observability. What we have done uh, right now is that we have, for example, we're using Victoria Metrics for our metrics pipeline, and we are also running a Prometheus <laughs> there that is completely <laughs> like the watchdog for, for everything that is ours. You know, it doesn't have as much information. Basically, if there is an incident, there is a lot less data there, let's say, so it helps us uh, prevent this, this major incident. So that's how we know. For example, in some cases uh, before, if we were using Prometheus as the main observability tool, you cannot do that anymore, <laughs> of course. So we were just like looking into solutions about using Open Telemetry, Thanos Ruler to send alert into Grafana or to a, a alert manager. In my mind, there is always like that. If you have an observability system, you need something smaller on top of that to look at it because, yeah, it can be bad. <laughs> yeah, it's who's watches the watches and who watches the watches who watch the watches. Right. And the coupling, how do you decouple your observability tools from production so that if production goes down, your observability doesn't? Yeah. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, usually we try to keep everything separate. So basically observability stack, we have our own instances. So uh, for example, if something is happening, we will not be affected. And if uh, something is happening and for example, something is down, we will have another instance spin up, have a brand new observability system to take care of that. But it's not foolproof, of course, uh, it, it can happen, but uh, we try our best. Uh, just to keep it as separate as possible, because if it is coupled with other applications, yeah, we will be blind <laughs> a lot of times. Right. Yeah, and, and Honeycomb, of course, we use Honeycomb to monitor Honeycomb, but it's a completely separate instance of Honeycomb and a different VPC and everything. Yeah, and that one is then monitored by another instance of Honeycomb. Which in turn is monitored by production. Yeah. <laughs> And they're all heavily simple because otherwise that would be just a 
diabolical in terms of load, and we'd get ourselves into some really nasty infinite loops of telemetry data. So sampling, that's that's a way that we deal with quantity of data and also with cost. How do you measure and control the costs of this whole observability solution? And you can speak from previous jobs if you want to. So, uh, yeah, in my previous company, I, I could say more because here in Miro, I'm still not very familiar with the processes, but in my previous company, we had a, a big FinOps movement regarding that. So everything that was run in a cloud environment, you had a cost for it. And of course, we had tags about uh, which team they belong to. So, of course, observability team. All the costs were on us, which is, of course, not ideal because there are other teams that are spending our resources, but we were there. So basically, we had uh, everyone had access to this and we always uh, acted with that in mind that we have to keep the costs to a certain level. Of course, the company had OKRs, said, okay, this year we have to save this much or we have to keep the costs uh, optimal. So, of course, we acted accordingly. Every time that we had uh, new technology that we wanted to introduce, it was a, a great financial plan. This is how much we're going to spend, this is how much we're going to to save, basically. And uh, when it comes to the amount of data for tracing, we were using open telemetry heavily. So we were using uh, sampling, of course, tail sampling, uh, mostly. I think it was from an article, that's how I learned about it, an article from Jesse from Honeycomb about tail sampling that uh, she had mentioned that you can keep all the errors and then you can do some probabilistic sampling. And I really liked that and we implemented it. It was great. The same thing for traces that was covered for, for Matrix. It was kind of, of course, more expensive, but uh, always trying to see the needs of the teams for certain tra- for certain metrics, see what was used and what was not. And that's pretty much it. And always try to use the technologies that were cost-optimized. For example, for tracing, we were using Cassandra, very expensive, very hard to maintain. And then Grafana Tempo <laughs> showed up <laughs> that uses an S3 or... Uh, some kind of uh, storage, and you can run it on uh, Kubernetes, and it is very scalable and a lot cheaper. So we're like, okay, let's go for that one. It's an amazing tool. So it progresses like every day. It's a different challenge, and every day it's a different solution, I would say. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the problems with product strategies is a lot of the time they don't factor in the cost of increasing the observability team's budget to cater for extra data. Um, it was exactly the same with the data engineering teams. You know, that's obviously changed now where, oh yeah, we're sending tons more data to you. Um, oh right, we need another X thousand pounds to to store all that data. Like, oh, but we don't have that money. And I, th- I feel that that's possibly what you're, you're alluding to there where we've got these products, new initiative, great, um, 72 new services, all of them generating 10,000 new metric data series. Now we need... 50 new servers for our Victoria metrics clusters. Oh, we don't have that money. <laughs> You're just going to have to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a bit of a turnaround coming with that, that people are starting to understand that observability needs to be a bit more first class from people like yourself who are really pushing that in the industry. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Well, there's a reason that when you outsource your observability, if you pay Honeycomb to store your data, we charge by event. Your observability team. I don't. Do you like report on which services are sending you the piles of data? That's the thing. 
We have a brief idea, of course, because you know your observability system, you know where most of the, the data is coming from, but we don't. And that was one of my aggressive ideas, let's say. Let's start charging teams for the information that they send. I mean, it's kind of difficult to calculate how much each team is sending, but I had the idea that that was going to make them more aware of uh, the information that they're sending, if they really need it or not, and to actually optimize their uh, instrumentations as well. That, for me, would be ideal for an observability system, that you know exactly how much each team or um, each application is sending. So... For example, if at the end of the day there is a conversation about, oh, the observability is being the main spender, look how much money you guys are spending, you're like, there you go, piece <laughs> of <a> paper. Of- <laughs> right, right, if you have a report. Yeah, it's a shared cost. It's not, we're not uh, using it to play. Uh, it's your data that we're processing. So that's, I think that's something very important that needs to be understood. And if you have the data to back it up, it makes it more easier. Uh, for the teams to understand and to take accountability and to actually give some slack to us observability engineers about our costs. (laughs) Right, right. And a lot of times you don't need like a formal method to make the teams pay for it. If you just show them the numbers, they can be like, ooh, yeah, that went up last month. Maybe I don't need all those span events or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. And it maybe means they come to you next time and say, we're going to need to send some more data. Is that okay? And at least you've got some prior knowledge. Which is way better than being surprised. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's why I'm a big fan of the FinOps movement that is uh, spreading in all the companies right now. Oh, tell me about that. I've noticed that there are a lot of companies uh, where I worked in the past and right now where I work as well, that there is a great movement to see where costs are going. So uh, not only the higher ups and the management is aware of what is being spent, but the teams themselves, every engineer has access to the costs of their stack. And it's not to pressure people into, oh, look how much you're spending. But it's good to know what what you are spending, where you can optimize, when you can make things better. And I really, really like that, that it's becoming a common practice in companies. Because you are spending like crazy for years and years, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, okay, now you see the crisis, the pandemic, you have spent $4 million less. It's just imaginary numbers. I don't know, it sounded a lot for a million dollars. <laughs> and you don't know, you're like, what is this? How am I supposed to, to do that all of a sudden? When you know and you're aware, you can take uh, measures and know what is happening. And be full owners of your stack. You are not a full owner until you actually know what is happening fully. It's accountability, isn't it? The idea that you are accountable for the cost. You can't just say, I made this run really, really fast. How did you do it? Well, every single customer has their own server. That's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And accountability doesn't have to be oh, your job depends on this or you're going to be punished for this. I like what you said, Eris, about just making it visible to people. And then they can balance. They can balance performance, which is visible because they have observability, to cost. Absolutely. We manage costs in our day-to-day life. That's how I see it. We know how to manage. We know how to cut corners, how to make our lives better. Why not do that with the thing that we're doing eight to nine hours a day, which is our work as well? Yeah, that's great. And one thing that I love about observability and being able to look at production is finding out whether people are using the features that I made and how they're using them. And so you get like the whole picture from what it costs to how it's working to what value it provides. Absolutely. I mean, at Honeycomb, we do a lot of that with coming down to even Lambda costs and being able to see the nanoseconds on a Lambda that we end up reducing down that saves cost and that becomes a, it's almost like bragging rights. 
It's like, you know, I saved X thousand pounds <laughs> because I optimized this Lambda. Like, I, I've been in organizations where people have code golfed. I don't know whether you're familiar with that term, where they've got it down to four lines of code in this thing. But it's not actually saved any money. It's not made customer journeys faster. But, you know, saving masses of money actually becomes quite decent bragging rights in an organization. But if you actually monitor it, which I don't think people did, they used to. Like you said, that FinOps movement has really pushed people towards it. Yeah, this is the beauty of cloud. When you have a data center, you've got like this big pile of resource and you're using uh, some of it. But with cloud, the billing is specific. And serverless especially, you really do pay for the CPU second, which corresponds to some power usage and heat output, which is bad for the environment. So we really can optimize for things that matter in some way at least. Instead of, if you measure it, people will optimize it. Don't measure lines of code. Except all editors measure them in number of characters because you can only have 80. <laughs> in my previous company, we had a newsletter from the FinOps team uh, about um, the item of the month. For example, every month, if there was a team that had a, a huge cost-saving initiative that did a great job, so I was actually featured in one of that. It was the proudest moment for me in my career. <laughs> if that uh, newsletter had like 100 uh, clicks, because of course it was internal. <laughs> How did you achieve that? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we did a rebranding or revamp of the tracing. As I mentioned earlier, of the tracing, we uh, removed Jaeger completely and introduced OpenTelemetry. And for the backend, we removed uh, Cassandra and put a tempo there. So we actually saved around 80% of our tracing costs. And we actually increased sampling thanks to that as well. I actually liked uh, Grafana Tempo a lot more. Uh, the Of course, the open source version. I liked it a lot. It was very nice for the users as an experience and a lot more features than the Jaeger UI had. So it was a win-win for our developers and also a win-win on the cost side. So it was a very proud moment. <laughs> Every time I look, it was me and uh, another and an architect of the company. We we pushed the initiative and of course, together with the whole team. But I would just look at it and be like, I'm so proud. <laughs> it, was, it was a great moment. I want to do that again. <laughs> I like the gamification of FinOps. I think that that's... That, that's got to be, a, somebody will create a tool for it soon. They'll, they'll listen to this podcast and there'll be a tool that's on the market using AI next week. Yeah, well, Martin, you posted in our internal channels the other day a screenshot of a dollar amount that you were worried about costing the company a lot of money. And I think our our sandbox AWS bill for last month was $1.21. No, it was $1.01. Don't, don't over-exaggerate things. <laughs> we can fix that. We can fix that. I'll spin up a Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> I mean, this, this has been enlightening to hear about that journey because I think that's a journey that a lot of people are on right now. Right. And the visibility is so many levels of what's going on into your code to how much that is costing you. How much you can do to improve it. Yeah. So, Iris, if you had one wish say, for open telemetry and observability tooling in general, what would your wish be? Well, it might sound a bit conservatory, but I wish open telemetry had the UI, because right now it's amazing. Uh, I have no complaints. You can do everything with it, uh, like transport, collect, modify, transform your data, everything. But imagine if open telemetry had alerting capabilities, had just like a UI that you could go and see your spans, your metrics, your logs there. 
instead of being just like a, a tool that it's collecting everything and sending somewhere else, it's also storing it as well. <laughs> that would be amazing to me because I'm such a fan of open telemetry that I would immediately try to adopt stuff. Be like, okay, I, I trust the, the other part of it. So why not the UI part as well? It's just, I don't know how realistic it can be. And it's probably not designed to be that way, but you know, <laughs> dreams. So you want a front end in open telemetry? Yeah. <laughs> front end, a back end, some sides. Just make it a big box. <laughs> <laughs> so to be able to fit everything, logs, traces, metrics. And profiles. Yeah. Profiles is the next one. Yeah, user funnels in the front end. Yeah, we need all of it. There's, <laughs> there's so many ways to go. The hotel movement hasn't ended, that's for sure. <laughs> Just getting started. Nice. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? I mean, I'm always preaching about observability. I just want to say, talk to your observability engineers, talk to your observability team, ask them about what you'd like them to offer you. See what tools they're using, how you can benefit from them. Because for me, the biggest thing is that observability is not something done by just a bunch of people that are in one team and are called observability only, and they do this these beautiful things. It's something that everyone has to contribute. If you are thinking, oh, okay, observability in my application is really bad. I don't have anything going on. It's probably your fault too. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that every team should be an owner of their observability signals of what they're sending, alerts they're creating, dashboards they're creating. Of course, we're there to help to provide the tools, guidance, but I think the teams are the ones that need to do their part and not always say, oh, observability, observability. Do your part, tell us what you need, give us feedback, and we'll, we'll try to do better. And instrument your code. Put the, put the important attributes in there. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, because you can provide the platform, but not the data. Absolutely. Uh, where can people find your work? They can find me on Medium. It, it is Durmish. It's uh, always like that or on LinkedIn, but mostly in Medium, yes. And uh, the best way to reach me is through LinkedIn. It is Durmish, uh, the same name, but everywhere. Yeah, I don't have nicknames yet. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. And a lot of fun. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-1-1-Y-C-A-S-T. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.